the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to have in studio Dr. Zudi Jasser. He is the head of the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care, among many other things. And uh, in the early days of COVID, he was here with us every Friday uh, doing this Doctors is In kind of hour with us. And uh, by popular request, people said, you know, uh, Seth, get get Zudi back in um, because of, you know, all the um, all the stories, all the fear, all the new cases we're told about. Have them give us some perspective, if you would. And it's a delight to have you uh, here, Zudi. It's that there's actually, I'm just going to be honest, no one I'd rather see today than you. You're a well, good and you. dear friend. Um, thank you. I mentioned to Bill earlier something. I don't know if it was on air or off air, but I don't know how many, how if people know what a man of parts, different parts you are, a man of all seasons. Bill Bennett wrote a book of man where he had a profile of you. He wrote, when the Jasser family came to the United States of America, they were captivated by the freedom and tolerance shown by this nation, written into the governing documents and preserved by the military. In America, the military was not a service reserved for the lower classes, but rather an honor, a sacred trust, safeguarding liberty. The reason that even the highest members of Congress helped nominate individuals to the academies was to preserve core principles of freedom and justice. Quote, I was raised with the sense that serving in the military was the highest honor. You gave back to God through charity and prayer and devotionals and being true to yourself. You are giving back to your family, children, and give more than you receive. And that it was the same thing with your country as well, said Dr. Jasser. Well said, sir. Thank well you. Said. It was it was just a, an honor to talk to Bill about that book. Well, you know how much we love you. I hope you know how much I do, and the audience does. Let me give out the phone number for anyone who has questions for Dr. Jasser. Um, medical, metaphysical. Can you do education like Dr. Biden? You can do a little education. Yeah, yeah. You can. You uh, don't have an EDD, but no, no. But we, uh, we call you Dr. Jasser, nonetheless. Monsieur Doctor. Monsieur Doctor Jasser. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Dana and Chandler has an interesting question. We'll get to with you in a few moments as well. Where are we with COVID? What's going on? Well, I think this is a, a virus that uh, we've known more about than any other virus we've been fighting, uh, including all the viruses we fought annually. And uh, I can tell you, as uh, somebody with a busy practice in downtown, near downtown Phoenix, uh, it has landed. Uh, it is, uh, I think, obviously, the numbers are there. I'm seeing a lot of patients uh, with uh, COVID and treating a lot of it at home and televisit and uh, as as little as we can in person uh, because of uh, the the prevention of transmission. But bottom line is, is I have, knock on wood, I've not lost a patient to COVID. I've got a few in the hospital, uh, but the vast majority of Americans are doing very well. Uh, you remember somebody we talked to, and I don't know if it was you I was talking to back in May, you said, yeah, I know there's, there's this virus, but the pharmacies don't seem that busy. Mm-hmm. There's paper towel and toilet paper missing, but not much else. Yeah. Now I can tell you when we call the pharmacies, they're busy with everything. Uh-huh. Cold uh, uh, symptom stuff, uh, 
all the you know from Robitussin to whatever you need, that stuff is flying off the shelves because people it, it's it's now it's sort of peaking, and I don't think it was prevented by lockdowns or any of that. It's just sort of the natural evolution of this virus. And uh, that's a great question. Sorry to interrupt. Do you yeah. see a distinction between states that were more serious in their lockdown and not with cases caseload? I don't. I haven't been able to pick that out, uh, and you know, if you look uh, whether it's Florida, South Dakota, and uh, we're sort of in the middle in yeah. that. I think Florida and South Dakota were the least, and you compare them to California and New York. If anything, the lockdown states seem to be persisting longer. Yeah, New York's persisting longer, and some of it is more specific to how concentrated their populations might be. Uh, but uh, I don't think there's any evidence to show that keeping people away from doing business. Uh, now, most states did prevent large gatherings, uh, whether it's uh, through concerts and things like that, and that's obviously very wise. Uh, but as far as locking down businesses and restaurants and gyms and everything else, I don't think there's any evidence to show that that had much difference. Didn't have. There's not much evidence to show that, at least in restaurants and gyms, they were vectors. Was there? Exactly. I mean, even New York's data said 1.43 percent were were post-evaluation transmitted from restaurants. Uh, So, uh, you know, again, we're looking 60, 70 percent transmitted from family gatherings. And even with that, all of the concern of Thanksgiving, we should have seen two weeks ago huge spikes. Because and now I know, as always, the the roosters taking credit for the morning, they're going to say, oh, because. Dr. Fauci and company told us not to gather. That's why we didn't see the spike. Still, we know the families gathered much more in Thanksgiving, smaller groups, but they still did. And there was no spike. It was just sort of a normal normal evolution. And they traveled, too. Yeah. There was travel, too. I have a few more questions. Can I just off the the top of my head things that have been concerning me? I had a doctor. I read this on air. I said it's not a doctor whose name I – the audience would be familiar with uh, an, MD. Words, an MD, but okay. not you, not, <laughs> not, not you. And, I, and I've had uh, Dr. Fonchus on too, and not her, but an MD said he runs a, a, a small family practice. Uh, he said he's had 120 patients with COVID all ages, no deaths. You said you're seeing a lot more cases, all ages, or do you see it more moving in certain age categories? Actually, I'm, my practice is 60 plus percent Medicare. So I have a lot of patients over 65. So uh, I have to tell you, one of the reasons I think they're doing better now is we have things like the bamilanivab uh, uh, monoclonal antibody. I've had uh, probably nine, 10 patients get uh, that are have mild symptoms, and it shows sometimes 70, 80% prevention of admission. Uh, we're doing things that, uh, as we're smarter, that we might not have done in March in my first few cases uh, that I saw in April or whatever. So uh, you have to give some credit to that, but the bottom line is, is also we're seeing very, I, my, I see patients from 12 and up. Mm-hmm. I have yet to see somebody, you know, I, I've had some patients that are teens that tested positive, but they had a runny nose and they were fine. Uh, The sicker patients that are congested and fatigued, pretty much 90 plus percent of them are 45 and above Mm -hmm. and 65 and above for the more significant symptoms, but they all doing pretty well, very well and not significant morbidity. That's what I worry about is that when people think it's a death sentence and it's exactly not a death sentence. Yeah, I wish, you know, I'll tell you the the toughest part of this is the fear that people are just stricken with uh, um, because it's not only the number of patients that why I'm, I'm we're all so busy right now on the front lines but the same patients are calling us almost every day yeah 
and understandably so. Sure, they, sure, they're worried. Sure. They don't want to be that ICU right. patient that their uncle or, you know, there are patients getting very sick from COVID, so they're worried about it. And uh, patients with the flu might not be calling us every day, even though the stats might not be that different. And I'll tell you, you take the nursing home data yeah. out of the COVID statistics right. – and I defy anybody to tell me it's much different than the flu. Okay. That's a great point. Let me ask you this. There's something we've had an uncomfortable um, – we've been uncomfortable talking about as a society um, for a long time. It seems like just now maybe a little bit we're beginning to, and that's the issue of obesity. How complicating a factor is obesity here? Because it seems to me from my lay perspective, it's almost the whole story. It is, and we don't know why. If there's cytokines, which are inflammatory mediators that uh, patients that uh, are afflicted with COVID uh, seem to not respond as well. There is something different about COVID than other viruses, not only because it's a coronavirus, but it seems to have some general inflammation. Like the patients that don't do well are getting cardiac inflammation and other complications, and the obese patients seem to be doing much worse with that. Mm -hmm. If you look in the ICU still today, um, while we do have some anecdotes of individuals that are thin and uh, don't do sure. well, the vast majority of them have have BMIs over 35. Obesity is mild obesity is over 30. Severe obesity is over 40. So 35 is in the mid area. That's why to get approval for the infusion of that monoclonal antibody, one of the criteria is to have a BMI over 35. They're trying to judiciously use those resources, and that's one of the criteria for it. I remember Dr. Fonches said to, uh, wrote a piece once, and maybe it was her first piece. She said, the thing I just don't understand, we have guidelines, CDC guidelines on obesity, too. When I go to the store and see people wearing masks, filling their carts with chips and soda and sugar cereal, I just have to wonder what kind of society we are here. Yeah, that's, you know, I'll tell you that the exercise part, too, is, right. you we know, we try to keep people moving. I'm, I'm you know, I've been using a lot more nebulizer breathing treatments in patients with COVID because I do think the more exercise they can do, the better they will do inside their house quarantined. Mm -hmm. But that's why I sort of thought it was so counterintuitive to close gyms. Mm -hmm. When has it ever been a vector? How could somebody who's sick with COVID, if you're really transmitting it, yeah. want to go exercise? Yeah. It's it just it's counterintuitive. And those patients actually are less susceptible. Right. Uh, right. Let me ask you this. We're going to go to a break. I want to come back. I want to take calls, yeah. uh, let you say whatever you want that you feel uh, you didn't address. And I want to ask you about the efficacy of masks as well, right. if that's okay. We'll be right back with Dr. Zudi Jasser. He is the uh, founder of the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care here in uh, Phoenix. Jasserim.com. Jasserim.com. Happy to take your call. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Jimmy Buffett's talking about a frozen concoction there that helps things. I like to talk about balance of nature. I take it every single day. I love it. And you just take one once a day, and you get over 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables. Boosts your energy, improves your health, boosts your immunity. Great stuff. Papaya, pineapple, oranges, carrots, zucchini, kale, cayenne pepper. Powerful, robust. Bust stuff, and they have a great deal. Free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code 
balance. We have Dr. Zudi Jasser in the house, and I do want to go to calls shortly, so if you're on hold, please stay there. We will get to you. I just wanted to do a couple other follow-up questions with you, Dr. Jasser, and then anything else you want to say that you think needs to be said right now. Um, the, um, the theology, maybe that's begging the question or prejudicing the jury, but the theology of masks, I have been a skeptic of them. I abide by whatever I'm told to abide by, but I have not seen a, again, looking at state by state, I have not seen a significant difference. I have seen 94% compliance in places with cases exploding, and I have, um, I've, I've been a skeptic about masks based on studies. I have read that uh, some that predate uh, March, but some that are as recent as this summer. You tell me what I need to think about when it comes to masks. Yeah, so let's divide it into three groups. Okay. The top group is sort of if you're wearing PPE, personal protective equipment, the masks 99.9% of people are wearing are completely useless. So from a personal protective equipment perspective, if you're a doctor seeing somebody with COVID, you want one of those N95 masks that have pores so small that air might come through, but no virus particles, microscopic, could ever get through. So we're not wearing that. So from a scientific perspective, that group, very few people are wearing then you What's look, the PPP mask? Uh, sorry, PPE mask. So PPE is personal protective right. equipment, equipment that keeps you protected from the virus. Right. The mask is What's an it N95. Like? It's oh, a oh white, that's the N95. White, yeah, okay. The white N95. Right, right. Okay. So that's okay. what doctors, that's what I wear in my office okay. if I'm concerned about it. The cloth masks are, so the second group is sort of a population mask. Um, and what does that do? Well, from a population perspective, if you have COVID and you're wearing a mask, yeah, exactly. So a surgical mask is a... That's what you call a surgical mask. Yeah, you can call it a comfort mask. But it's bottom line, it's a surgical mask. It has pores that, uh, you know, if you can smell things in the room from it, then obviously it's not filtering the virus very well. However, from a volume perspective, if everyone's wearing those masks, and if let's say you have COVID and you sneeze... Instead of 50 billion particles, you might sneeze out 4 or 5 billion. So the transmissibility, I would say, yes, from a population perspective, it makes sense to wear masks because the transmissibility decreases from the people that have it. Protecting you, when that's in the air, if you walk close to somebody that has it and it's aerosolized for a certain period of time, your pores, you know, like wearing a chain link fence to prevent, uh, you know, dust from coming through. That's not going to happen. So and then the third group are the ones that just don't wear any masks. There's studies that show that that doesn't necessarily change much for as far as you getting it. But from the people that have it, I do think it is helpful to prevent them from transmitting it to others. And uh, can we go back to gyms for a second yeah. and working out? Because we had this discussion about obesity. I think physical fitness is important. I'm kind of a workout nut. You are. Oh. Is that fair to say? You're yes, a workout nut. I do. Yeah, Seven we, we days work out. we do different things. But um, gyms, uh, no real evidence that they are spreading the disease. What about the notion of sweating, panting, breathing harder. What do you say to that? This, I have to tell you, Seth, this was the thing that, that's why I came out so early against the uh, discrimination from the business community against gyms. Because I, I guess I missed the class in medical school where gyms were 
taught to us as being petri dishes of disease that nowhere else was. Uh, you know, why the grocery store isn't, why, you know, the gas, everywhere else you go is not a Petri dish, but the gym where people are the healthiest, probably segments of any business you could go to. And they, you know, yes, now they're doing a lot more precautions, et cetera. But why the Department of Health would just focus right in on that as if somehow we knew that those were vectors of disease. No studies have shown it. I think one of the national chains showed that out of 93 million visits to, to fitness centers, they had 1,800 cases of COVID, wow. which tells you that it self-selects yeah. where people with COVID are going to f- not feel right. And if you wake up not feeling right, I usually wake up, at, I go work out at 5 in the morning. Yeah. If I wake up at 4.15, I'm not feeling right. That might be a day I might skip my workout. Right? Yeah, most doctors tell you if you're not feeling well yeah. to take it as a rest day, don't they? Exactly. I, I've always been told that. It just anyway. doesn't make sense. I don't. It's discriminatory and it's just sort of a way for politicians and society to say, oh, look, we're doing something. We're doing keeping you something. safe. We've saved some lives. Uh, there was one last question I had for you. We're told the hospitals are in extremis right now, overloaded. We should all be very fearful. Are they going to send in the hospital ships? I guess they can't do it for Arizona. What are we, what are we to make of hospital capacity? Well, the, the hospital capacity surge happening is, is real. The, the, the ICU beds are filling. We see the curves that are on the, uh, you know, the uh, um, websites for Arizona Department of Health. Uh, uh, but the reality is is how fearful should we be? One part I really want investigative journals to be asking more about is where's the discussion of surge capacity, right? We we heard pictures back in March and April when they locked us down. We saw pictures of St. Luke's Hospital and others saying this is where they're preparing so that if there's surge necessity, this would open up. Well, okay, so let us know. Reassure us now that if the hospitals get full, that they will have that open up. They'll have mobile units that the, the National Guard or others will help build because I think that exists and we should not be fearful. Uh, but yet we're not hearing about it, number one. Number two, we have to realize pre-COVID, many of us docs that admit patients to the hospital, we get told by our nearest hospital, oh, we're on divert, send the ambulances elsewhere. Hospitals getting full is not just sort of this spontaneous. It's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. It happens occasionally. Now, remember, we have this illness trading happening, right? People with drug overdoses, people with heart attacks, people with chest pain, abdominal pain are staying home. So you naturally have probably 20, 30 percent less patients going to the hospital that should be going. So you have room to make up for this extra COVID patient, which I'm not sure I agree with that room. But bottom line is it's happening. So the, the hospitals are probably not much different than they are if you look at the numbers in 18 and 17 during the peak of the flu season. Now, we're not seeing that much flu yet because it's early. But the numbers were scaring people in this panic-type industry, if you will, when, in fact, we've seen hospitals at 90 95% capacity quite frequently. Okay. Not, not something that raises your eyebrows too terribly much. It raises my eyebrows to be, to be aware because it's still climbing, yeah. uh, to be safer and, and uh, to do the right things against COVID. Uh, but uh, it's not something that would make me say that uh, this is... It raises your eyebrows, Italy. but it doesn't set your hair on fire. How's exactly. that? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Thank you. We have to deal somehow with the integument system around here, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's not it's not Italy. Remember, Italy I had... just say integument and you just go with it. Skin. Most oh. people would say, Seth, oh, wow, I'm sorry. that's kind of impressive. Yeah. As long as we don't talk about mixturition. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back. We'll take your call. 
I was just getting a remedial math lesson from Dr. Jasser. That was good. And Bill was helping, too. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602 uh, Dr. Jasser, you have anything else you want to throw out there? You want to see what the calls have to say? Call let's let's listen to some. All right. Oh, we're going to do uh, – Dana, stay t- stand tight. We're going to do your met- metaphysical question in a minute, but first physical, Andy in Apache Junction. Hi, Andy. You're on with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Oh, good to talk to you both. I'm a, I'm a fan of both of you. Uh, you guys do good stuff, and I'm very happy to talk to you today. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank you, Andy. So, Internet friends, Dr. Fauci, the news, this, that, and the other thing, you hear all these numbers about how many cases we have and how many deaths we have. But then on Tucker Carlson last night, you heard the death rate from Grand County, Colorado, was X number of people, and coincidentally, 40% of them had gunshot wounds. <laughs> wow. Coincidentally. So, coincidentally. Yeah, and, and we hear that heart attacks, cancer, all like that, that's all mysteriously, you know, 90% in remission this year, and everything's COVID. Can you guys tell me what's really going on? There was this case I saw in Seattle where they were they counted a gunshot wound as a COVID death because the person also had COVID. They pro- I don't know if George Floyd is considered a COVID death. He had COVID. I know in New York, if you have COVID 60 days prior to death, they will mark it as a COVID death. But what's your sense of this? Yeah, so this Are we is, overcounting is the question. Yeah, I mean, welcome to the world of uh, you know medical statistics and actuarial evaluations. And, and what I mean by that is... So often in medicine, and you know, I was a little upset. Uh, uh, I think the AMA went a little too far when it sort of jumped on everybody that was critical of what you were saying, which is that they were saying, "Well, doctors don't lie on diagnoses. Uh, uh, the the uh, media and others should not start saying doctors are being deceptive. We're not being deceptive. I don't think. I think the AMA sort of missed what the public like you are saying. It's not about criticizing doctors. It's criticizing the system. The system is such that when you get admitted for chest pain, for example, we say you might have had a heart attack. Well, by the time you leave, you might not have had a heart attack, but you had some other diagnoses. You still sort of get put into that bucket of chest pain, possible heart attack diagnoses. So when you apply for life insurance or other things, there are a lot of symptoms and diagnoses put into your own, your own chart that insurance companies will try to say you had when, in fact, you didn't have them. So the statistics evaluation uh, this is a, and a primary as a primary care doc. I deal with this all the time. Patients call me and say, "Oh, I can't get my insurance." Well, you, you said I had, you know, lung disease. You said I had heart disease, and I'll say, "No, you had a little vascular disease." But the insurance company is saying you had this. So what happens? There's billing incentives. There's diagnosis incentives. There's uh, uh, um, resource incentives that all are woven into these diagnoses. So with COVID. We have to, especially in an infectious environment, treat every patient like they could be COVID until we know they're not so that we're not transmitting it to the other staff. And so the numbers are initially going to be inflated. And then a lot of other patients are getting retested over and over. I don't know how they're making up for a lot of the duplication, triplication, and and otherwise. So the system, from a statistical perspective, is just, uh, I think, quite inherently faulty. Do you think it's possible years, maybe months, but more likely years, if it's possible at all, we'll do a look back and say it wasn't 320,000 deaths from COVID. It was something much less from COVID. Do you think that's potentially possible? The question is, how do you, how do you call that data yeah. 
in order right. to, you know, it. how do you mine it right. in order to get the right? I mean, I'm dealing with this every day. The, the, the death knell of Obamacare mm-hmm. is the insurance companies that I'm working with culling and, and sort of mining my data, trying to get the best diagnoses so that they get paid more from a population perspective so that I get paid better in my incentives. So I'm incentivized not by the quality of the, the the patients marching into my office because they love me as a doc, but I get paid better because I code things in a better way so that the insurance company gets paid better from a population perspective. This is not about honesty or dishonesty. We code it honestly. But the bottom line is is that when you look back two, three years later, that actually makes it even worse because how do you follow that? It's just what's on paper. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time the charting's not as good. The you know, I don't know how you're gonna get better data five years later. Interesting. Is there a COVID incentive? Not yet. Okay. But there is certainly uh, if you look at some of the uh, CARES uh, payments right. and things like that, uh, they are – and I think rightly so. There's a huge amount of unpaid care we're doing right now sure. by screening in the office yeah, and other sure. things we weren't paid to do before. Medical offices are not getting that. Hospitals are getting a lot of that. Aha. 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 Be right back. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Those are my friends, the Saunas Brothers. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're in the real estate market, if you're into selling uh, a home or buying a home, if you're trying to sell a home it's not going well, do call my friend James Wexler of JMG Real Estate. The Phoenix Business Journal ranks James the number one selling individual agent in Arizona, and he's great if you're buying a house, too. He has a private database of homes that will soon be going on the market, including access to everything that is on the market. He can guarantee to sell your home at market value or pay the difference. And for maximum convenience, James can make you an upfront guaranteed offer within 24 hours. Give James Wexler a call at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's James Wexler, W-E-X-L-E-R.com. You ready for another call? Yes, sir. All right. We have Dr. Zudi Jasser in the house taking all your calls, metaphysical, physical, medically, educationally, you name it. He's a man of parts. 602-508-0960. Dana is in Chandler. Hello. Hello. So, yeah, I, do, I, I guess I didn't think of it as a metaphysical question, but I do have a question. And I, I've i been thinking today as I've been receiving all kinds of um, wishes for happiness because it is indeed my birthday and I am indeed happy. Um, but I wonder. Happy birthday, Dana. That's some, great. Happy thank birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, when we say to someone, oh, I'm happy for you, or someone you know, says to you that they're happy for you, if they themselves are not happy is it not an insincere gesture i mean could that be an argument for why happiness is a moral obligation all right so throw this at me simply give it to me one more time once isn't enough so if someone is saying that they are happy for you but they are generally not they are not a happy person themselves yeah can they really be happy for you can the unhappy wish others happiness Sorry. Yeah, that's much simpler than what okay. I was trying to say. That, that, that's, well, you see, I have an EDD, so no, I don't. Right, I don't. Right, I don't. Right. I, don't. <laughs> I don't. Can the unhappy be happy? Can they wish others happiness? I don't know, Dr. J. What do you think? Well, 
I think that's the most human characteristic, right, is, is virtue is based on empathy, and empathy is the ability to, the golden rule, right, to wish upon others not only that what you'd have for yourself, but better than what you'd have for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly what all parents want for their kids, is that their kids have Do better. less problems and more blessings than they had. Right. Um, but I understand where you're coming from on the question. I didn't mean to make it obviously true because, you know, I was asking before, can can an atheist say, bless you after you sneeze? Or, right. uh, you know, I do think that sometimes, and this came across, uh, whereas the whole interfaith uh, uh, debate about, you know, should a, a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew stand up and pray in the way they would, you know, I remember some of the civic organizations getting offended when you were, if a Christian prayed in the name of Jesus. And I would think that the best, most, most profound thing you could tell your friend is to wish them what you would want, mm-hmm. right? So whatever your faith is, you would want them to uh, uh, be blessed by that. Mm-hmm. So wh- I, don't, I never understood why, you know, it, whether you're talking about Merry Christmas or, or saying a prayer, an invocation before something, I don't want it to be some neutered general invocation. I want that person to invoke the blessing of the meal mm-hmm. with their scripture. So you're not offended by Merry Christmas, not at all. I I, I'm, I want people to, to enjoy their holiday so that when I enjoy mine, they will re- appreciate it. I, I have to say there's there's two thoughts I have on this, I think all in accord with what you said, I think. One is for those who don't want to—for who, <clears throat> those who want to tell others they shouldn't say Merry Christmas, there is a contingent in this society that goes around telling people oh, don't I say know. Merry Christmas. I think that's infringing on their religious freedom, by the way. I, I think— I think it is. Um, I think it's being religiously um, discriminatory. I think it's being at least religiously callous. Why would you tell someone what they can do with their theology, their God, their belief system? On Dana's question, I kind of looked at it a little differently. Can the unhappy wish others happiness? Uh, So did she mention Dennis Prager? I guess she did. He talks about happiness as a moral imperative, right? And... You tell me what your experience is in this, Dr. Jasser, but I've always thought that um, I'm wrong. I didn't always think this. I learned this later in life. I learned later in life doing a lot of work in uh, addiction recovery uh, stuff. I learned that you can't think yourself into good behavior, but that you can behave yourself into good thinking. That is to say... Uh, behavior changes thought. Thought doesn't change behavior. So if you are generally perhaps born to the moon instead of the sun, if you're an unhappy person, but you know, you kind of force yourself to smile and you say good tidings to people and you comport yourself, maybe even if you fight against your natural inclination not to be upbeat, over time I think you can become, I think you can change your set point. I do think that. um, That behavior changes thought. Yeah, I, I I could not agree more. Oh, good, I think good. that that's the imperative of life is that God gives you a, and this is my own belief, but God gives you a set of challenges, and what you deal with those challenges, what you deal with those gifts is how you'll be judged. Um, and actually, I have to. there is a viral quote from an essay that an 11th grader wrote about this whole virtual education, yep. and she wrote in here, she said in her, in her pleading in her essay, she said, please, guys, unmute. 
The teacher pleaded with us to turn on the cameras. It's like I'm floating in space talking to no one but myself. We're all floating in space, all alone, with no choice but to drift into non-existence. That includes the teachers. The teachers ask us questions. No one answers. They ask us to turn on the cameras. No one does. It doesn't matter what they say. No one cares anymore. So here's a kid writing this who's an 11th grader. I have kids doing this virtual half, you know, what education. It's, uh, and this humanity, what you just talked about, moral education, is being lost because it's learned behavior through social, physical engagement with people. Where now you see them engage. And when you're losing that, we're creating new pandemics of psychological disease that we have yet to, to even be close to appreciate. Yeah, we didn't even scratch the surface on that. Maybe we can do that with your next visit because you and I have long been worried about the fallout of um, of the uh, addressing of COVID, the fallout of the reaction to COVID having much more long-lasting consequences than COVID itself. I don't know if it's fair to call it iatrogenic or not, but we are we are doing things that will have far worse and longer-lasting things to our society, to our people, to our young people than the COVID disease is doing to our lungs. Um, We'll be right back with Dr. Zudi Jasser. It's been a delight to have Dr. Zudi Jasser here. Um, I was going to close by praising him on so many different things, but I'll I'll do that in a half a second. Um, first, uh, you had a speaking of metaphysical questions. You kind of had one uh, on the break. I just thought it might be fun to share with the audience. I was thinking to my old self, right, pre-COVID self, and I'm thinking if you had asked me and tied me down and said, "Zudi, what do you th- if we had a virus, a pandemic going throughout America, through every city? How would the left respond? Would they lock down every city? Would they demand that our kids stay home and all that?" I, I, th- I thought liberalism. The, their liberalism was sort of just this free sort of do whatever you want. I, I just ne- never would have guessed the political dynamics that happen now. And, and well, I think there's a hypocrisy. I, I think there's a, a mixed mind on it in the left, honestly, Zudi. Uh, I think they would have been loath to do it if it was a Democratic president that would have tanked the economy in an election year. I think that's one. So if wow. Hillary were president, I think it would have been a much different scenario. That's one thing. Two, there is an element to the left, though, that is always putting us on the brink of destruction, right? In the 60s, uh, there was that uh, that famous song, um, uh, uh, Eve of Destruction, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in the 70s, it was the population bomb. Uh, in the 80s, it was nuclear winter. All of these things were going to kill us. And then, of course, Al Gore comes along and Greta Thunberg comes along mm-hmm. and we're watching the evisceration of entire ecosystems in front of our very eyes. So there's been that. It's always the worst as possible, too. There's that element to it, too. But I think more than anything, a lot of this was politicized. And the reason I think that is I remember when Obama had the swine flu and Joe Biden said on national TV he wouldn't use the New York subway system. That was a huge communications crisis at the White House. They had to backtrack and say, no, 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 you can't say that. (laughs) And he had to apologize for putting that fear that's when it was a Democrat. Well, that's the music. I, I love you, Zudi. You are a dear Thank friend, you. a gift to our community, a gift to the world, a true patriot. And uh, we're privileged to have you and your brain and soul with us here. Anytime. Same here. God bless you. Thank you. Until Monday, folks, God bless you all and class dismissed.